Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, again, as we come before you tonight, take these words tonight and cause them to be all that we need from you. Teach us what we need for our life and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to return to our study of the Gospel of John. We have been away from it for a couple weeks now, I think, due to Easter and other things. But for our time tonight, I want us to open to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, this is a rather lengthy section of John's gospel. And it only really covers one night, beginning in chapter 13 and going all the way to Jesus' death. But I dare to say that if I was to ask for a survey tonight, I would probably find that This section of scripture, particularly in chapter 13 tonight, contains the best known and probably the most loved words and teachings of Jesus Christ to at least some of us. Um, All of us certainly are familiar with it, but maybe it's not our favorite part or maybe it's not our most loved part, but I would dare say that some of us it would be. These words really come on the verge of the most heinous suffering that Jesus Christ would ever endure. And yet, at the same time, even with that looming on the quick horizon of his very earthly life, he teaches each one of his children how to have peace, how to have true peace, how to have true settledness, if you will, in the midst of the most troubling tribulation. I think this is the primary teaching of this entire section, true peace in the midst of all that life brings, all the storms of life. And I, I want to say to us, we're only going to scratch the surface of this text tonight as we begin to really ponder the, the overall theme of this whole uh, last part of Jesus' life. But I want to read for us the first 20 verses of chapter 13. Uh, to just whet our appetite to these things. And then it's my desire to to really clarify what might be confusing theologically uh, and then understand where real peace in life begins. So that's my intent tonight. I hope we can accomplish that together. So if you would follow along with me in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. John records for us, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. Taking his towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do to you, do to, what I do You do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he had said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, 
Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. We are certainly familiar with the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. It is an oft-quoted passage for us who believe in the absolute authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life. Because Paul says to Timothy in his final letter, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for instruction. It is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Why? Why is it profitable for all of that? So that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the point. This is the purpose which is with the Word of God, which is why God gave it to us, so that you and I would be corrected, so that we would be directed, so that we would be taught and instructed, so that we would be challenged and trained in the righteousness of living by faith, that right walking, that walking by faith, that righteous living, so that we would be thoroughly equipped in order to do all the things that God has called us to do. This is true of every portion and every word of the Bible. But we also acknowledge that for many of us, some parts of Scripture seem to carry a little more value than other lesser known or lesser studied parts. Not many of us, as we would probably readily admit, do our daily devotions in difficult passages like Leviticus and other places of the Scripture. Although we ought to, I think. And this Scripture, this portion right here in John chapter 13, I think fits within that category for most Christians as as one loved. Our, Our Lord Jesus Christ is on the verge of imminent death. Death is right around the corner. He knows it's coming. In fact, he knows that his hour has come, it says in verse 1. And it is here that we find him beginning to give the final instructions to his disciples. And he concludes those instructions in John 17 as he prays to the Father the night before his death. And he prays for them and he prays for all who would believe. One commentator said it this way, quote, Nowhere in the entire Bible does the child of God feel that they are walking on more holy ground than this section of Scripture, unquote. It's true. It's true. And so in this section that we as the children of God find our place, we find our place before the Father and we find our rightful place in the world find our place before God and we get Christ showing us our rightful place in the world in which we are now. There is instruction about heaven. There is a new commandment to love one another. There is teaching here concerning the helper to come who we know to be the Holy Spirit who indwells us. 
It is in this section from 13 to 17 that we find Christ, God in the flesh, pouring out his heart before the Father in prayer, praying for us. We understand in his prayer what eternal life actually is, that we might know him and know God the Father. And so there are grand and magnificent truths to be learned And yet, we need to know that these are words that are not for everybody. These are not words for everybody. These are words reserved exclusively for those who are truly people of God. Sometimes we we will go to the Gospel of John and we will tell someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, listen, go here. here's a copy of the Gospel of John or open the Bible to the Gospel of John and we will read those things to them and that is wonderful and God uses that and many people have been saved through that and yet at the same time, once you get to chapter 13, these are not words for the unbeliever. These are words from Jesus Christ to His true disciples. These are words for us. And I think this is some of the confusion that I want to begin to dispel tonight as we begin. These are not letters to all men. These are not words to everybody. These are words to those who are truly God's children. If all men try to do this, all men try to exercise this, if if it becomes a moralistic practice in order to do this, It will gain nothing before the Lord. And so John tells us in verse 1 of chapter 13, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, he's giving us this background, he's giving us what's going on in the narrative, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them too. The end. Right there, right at the beginning of this passage, it, it narrows it down to a group of people. It is those who are His own. Those who are His own. Jesus Christ has a love for His own. John tells us, and the question that comes to mind immediately is this, who are His own? When you read through the Gospel of John and you hear Jesus teaching and you hear him pleading and you hear him sharing and calling and people coming and some not coming and then you get here and he says he loved them, his own, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who are his own? You may say, well, that's an easy answer for anyone to give. But I want us to know, I want us to realize that it must not be that easy because there is still so much confusion within the evangelical church. The answer to that question has been given to us many times in our study of the Gospel of John and we have seen it over and over and over again. For us here, it may certainly be simple. I'll just review it shortly for us. In John chapter 6, Verses 37 and 44, we find out there that the ones who are Christ are the ones whom the Father draws. It is not everybody, it is not universal, it is not for everybody. Not everybody comes, not everybody is Jesus Christ. It is only those whom the Father draws. Verse 44 of chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 37 of that same chapter, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, those who are Christ's own are the ones whom the Father has sovereignly chosen to give to Christ. John chapter 10, Jesus tells us that they are those for whom, or John tells us they are those for whom Christ lays down his own life. John chapter 11, I am the good shepherd, or John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I have other sheep, they're not of this fold, I must also bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So John 10 also tells us that his own are those who hear his voice. They hear his voice. And we certainly may remember when we were studying that section that we made sure that we understood this hearing to be those who knew Christ, those who followed Christ in obedience to Christ. It's not simply someone who sits in a church or someone who hears somebody open the Bible and read the words of the Bible. It is those who have embraced it, taking those words in and believing them and living according to them. As James says, it's a faith that produces works in your life. We could go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 13. And be reminded again that Christ's own are those who were born not of natural descent. That's blood. That's through one human to another human. Nor of human will. That's by works, morality, effort. They're not born that way. That's not how Christ owned. They don't come through heritage. That's not Christ owned. Nor by the will of man. But those who are born of God. So those who are Christ are those whom he has given eternal life. Those who will never perish as John 3.16 says. And according to John 10, again, they are those who cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. John 10, verse 29. So it seems clear as to who his own are. And yet, there seems to be confusion in the minds of many along these lines, particularly as many begin to ponder what is meant by the term world. You notice it there in John 13, verse 1. He knew it was his hour that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does John mean when he says world? What exactly is the world from God's standpoint? If we misunderstand this term, which, by the way, is a very important term in John's writings, then if we misunderstand that, then we can come away thinking that this section, 13 to 17, and other sections in the Gospels pertains to everybody rather than just those who truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to understand this. I want to spend a little bit of time on this. I said I wanted to clear up some theological confusion, and sometimes that's necessary. I want to spend time on that here tonight as we begin this section. There are several original words, there are several Greek words that are typically translated in your New Testament as world. But one that I want to focus on for a short time tonight is the term cosmos. Cosmos. The word cosmos occurs 185 times in the New Testament. And of those 185 times, you will be interested to know that 105 times it is used in the writings of John. It's mentioned three times in the book of Revelation, which seems rather surprising to me since God is going to destroy the world. And yet, it's really not mentioned much other than by description of the destruction and judgment that's coming in Revelation. So the term cosmos is only used three times in the book of Revelation. It's used 24 times in John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the other remaining 78 times, it's found right here in the Gospel of John. Now, just by way of comparison, the word believe or the word believed or believes or believing, we, we, we talk about John being the book about belief, and that surely it is. And so you would think that theme would be massively huge in the Gospel of John. It is, but it's only used a hundred times 
in all of John's epistles, all of the books that John has written. The gospel is epistles and revelation. And so this is a very important word for us to consider. Not only for the reason of how many times it's used in the gospel of John, but also because it's only used eight times in Matthew and three times in both Luke and Mark combined. So 11 times in the other gospels total, 78 times in John's gospel alone. So this word is important to John. It ought to be important to us. We have to ask the question, what does John mean when he uses the term cosmos? The answer to that is not as easy as you might think. But let me see if I can try to shed some light on it for us and not confuse us more than we might be already. Because as I have said before, when you are studying the Bible, context is king. Context is king. The word originally meant an ornament. Cosmos in its, in its most basic original meaning meant an ornament. Uh, and, and during, obviously, the time of the holiday season, we understand that. We hang ornaments on our Christmas trees and around our homes. And even here in the church, we have ornamentation. It's, it's one of the decorative objects that we traditionally hang upon walls and windows and trees and things like that. Right? Each of them have some feature of beauty to it, something that we like, a memory that it conjures up, some, some idea in which uh, we, we find a joy or we, we have a good memory. It's a beauty to it, some kind of beauty for us. And this meaning of ornamentation has been carried over into our society, into the days of humanity. I'll probably get myself in trouble when I say this. But it's been carried over into the world of ladies' makeup. Believe it or not, this is where we get the meaning of the word cosmetic. Cosmetics comes from the word cosmos, and it carries the meaning of beautification. It carries the meaning of ornamentation. Many of you use cosmetics. And you use those cosmetics, and you use ornamentation to enhance the beauty of your natural selves. I'm being very careful here. (laughs) So the idea of an ornament has been carried over as a way to describe, in one sense, the physical world. The physical world, the terrestrial ball on which we reside that has been hung in the sky by the power of God, held there by His power, by the word of His power, is the ornament of God. It is the cosmos. It is His beautification. It's His ornamentation that He has hung in the sky. And that is one of the meanings of this word world. We've read about that back in John chapter 1. I'll just show you this quickly. John chapter 1. Verse 9 and 10. There was the true light. Remember John the Baptist said he there was a man who came into the world. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness of the light that we must, that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he bore witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now you have two ideas of the term world there. You have the idea of the physical world. He was in the world. He made the world, that's the physical world, and he came into the world talking about the creation of humanity. So you have the creation of man, you have the the physical terrestrial globe. John is dealing with both of those ideas right there in the first few verses of his gospel. And so people and the globe can be the cosmos. 
In some context, he's describing the physical globe on which we reside, the the earth itself, the terra firma, the beauty, the ornament in the sky. And on the other context, he's describing the whole of collective humanity. John uses the same term for each. He uses cosmos. Turn over to John chapter 3. Because John says in John chapter 3, 16, that God so loved the world. We need to understand that John is speaking about the human race in a collective sense, but not necessarily each specific individual. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. See, there's, a, there's an exclusive and an inclusive reality to that verse. God loves the world in the sense of his created his creation, and yet he doesn't love the world like he loves those who are his own. There is a collective human race description in John chapter 3, verse 16, and yet there is a necessity that each individual is not necessarily included in the special love of God while he has a universal love for all people. And we know from other places in Scripture that universal salvation is not true. In fact, in our passage tonight in John chapter 13, we know the universal salvation is not true because Judas betrays the Savior. He is not saved. If universal salvation is what is meant universally by the term world, then Judas certainly would be saved. And we know Judas is not saved. So there are at least two ways that the term is being used by John, but there's a third way as well. And it's this third way that we find being used in the first verse of John 13. This is the primary way it is used to the end of this gospel. The third way that the term is used is to describe the world system. The world system. We have sometimes it's the terra firma, sometimes it's the collective humanity, and sometimes it has the idea of the world system. And what I mean by world system is the world in which the human beings belong, you and I, that, that stand in constant rebellion against God. The world system, that which is in constant rebellion against God. The world system is all that the world stands for. Its values, its pleasures, what it loves, what it aspires to become. This is the same world or cosmos, if you will, that John speaks of in 1 John chapter 3 when he says that it does not know God. The world system that rejects God does not know God. It's not that it doesn't have a knowledge of God. Romans 1 clearly says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen so that they're understood by what he's made. We know that, but they don't know him in an intimate sense. They reject him. This is the one John is speaking of in chapter 10 of those who have rejected, or chapter 1 when he says he came into to his own and, and they would not have him. They, they rejected him. The, the world system and those who belong to the world system rejected Jesus Christ. This is the world that hates you and I. This is the world that hates those who are true followers of Jesus Christ because they hate Christ. So when John speaks of Jesus on the day of the Passover feast here in John chapter 13, and he speaks that he should depart out of this world and loving his own who were in the world, this is what he means. It's departing out of all of that. Loving those who are still here, who have to deal with it. 
Those who are his own are not universally those floating on the globe, the whole base of humanity, but rather those who are exclusively the ones who have been chosen out of the realm of rebellious humanity for salvation. That's who he's talking about. He's using election language. This is election language. This is the exclusivity of those whom God the Father has given to the Son for salvation to be glorifying Him unto all eternity. This is election language. So there is a difference then between God's relationship with the general collection of humanity and His relationship with those whom He has elected to save. There is a difference in relationship. We could state it the way one man said it, quote, God has done some things for all men. In other words, just as Acts chapter 14, verse 17 says, God has given witness of himself by giving rain to all men, both wicked and righteous. God has created all men and he sustains all men and even for a time patiently tolerates all men in their unrepentant state. But on the other hand, God has done all things for some men. He has done some things for all men, but he has done all things for some men. And it is these that are Jesus' own. Having loved his own God's own do not lack anything. God's own will never lack anything. You and I, as his own, as his children, as his elect, as his specially, special, exclusive object of his specific love upon us, different from his general love for the rest of his creation, will never lack anything. So we ask and begin to think through this as I always do as I ask the Bible questions so that it might answer the questions that I have in my mind. And the question that I want, to, want us to ask tonight is what are the things God has done for those who are His own? The full answer to that question is answered through a study of this entire section. These are the final words of Jesus Christ to a saved people. So, so we would have to be here for the next 12 weeks or something to, to, to get it all. But I want to begin to give us just a few of these things to ponder. Number one. Number one. God has loved his own. and We've mentioned it already, but I'm going to mention it here. In a special way. He has loved his own in a special way. Look at what John says. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. Jump over for a moment to John chapter 17. Verse 26. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith you do love me may be in them and I in them. This is a special love. Although God loves the world in a general sense, he loves his own in a special kind of way. He loves you and I with a special kind of love. And the only way that I can think about to describe it is that the special love that God has for his own is a saving kind of love. It's a saving kind of love. And the result is that because God has chosen through the divine counsel of His will to shower some with His saving love, they become Christ's own and are kept secure forever by Him. The only reason that you and I have any kind of 
Comfort in the words is the reality that God, by His divine counsel, showers His saving love on us and gives us to Christ that we might be secure in Him forever. That's a special love. Because He doesn't do that for everybody. John says, having loved His own. That means that love was expressed in eternity past. That's what the grammar reveals here. Having loved his own. In other words, that's something that took place in the past and has ongoing and forever ramifications to it. And we know that when that was that happened, we know when that love, having loved his own, we know when that love began. You say, when did that love begin? It began, as Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the cosmos. Somehow in the divine counsels of God's will and His special loving heart, He chose you in Christ before He ever began to create anything. He chose to bestow upon us His special love in Christ with the continuing result that we would be loved in Christ forever. That's why John says he loved them to the end. Now that does not simply mean just to the end of his life. That's confusion. Some people try to come along and say, oh, in John 13, it says he loved them till he, till he died, that he loved them to the end of his life. Listen, if God's love ended at the cross, it's over. We don't have it anymore. It does not mean to the end of our lives. He loved his own and he loved them to the end, to the end of their lives. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. He died before most of them, if not all of them. But it does mean literally that He loved them to the utmost or to eternity. We might just say it this way, He loved them forever. And so that means that His love for us will never end. You cannot get outside the love of God in Christ. You cannot get outside of Him. It's as eternal as He is. His special love for us who know Him by faith is eternal. It is not the same kind of love He has for the general world. And while this gives us special privilege, it also gives us special obligations. This is what lies behind, or lies at the base, if you will, of Christ's new commandment. He's going to say in chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How did he love us? He loves us with an eternal kind of love. He loves us with a special kind of love. He loves us with a love that never ends. In other words, Jesus says, since you are loved by me, so too you are to respond with that same kind of love to your brothers and sisters who are mine. What else? What else did God do for us in this special love? What else did He do? Well, we know that He gave us in this special love he gave us the Holy Spirit. Right? He loves His own, having loved His own who were in the world. He loves them to the end. And we know in John chapter 14 that He has given us the Spirit. It's a great comfort to us as we walk through the struggles and trials of life, is it not? We are not alone. We are loved forever, and because we are loved forever and we are in Christ forever, we have the Holy Spirit forever. Christ is with the Father, but we are not alone. I will ask the Father, he says in 1416, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you. How long? 
forever. Forever. That the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. See, that's the, that's humanity. He's talking about the fallen world. They can't receive it. He's not talking about the globe itself. He's talking about the world, the human rejectors of Him. That the system, the world can't receive the Spirit because it doesn't behold Him. It doesn't know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Forever. Jesus tells those who were with him that night, you don't have to be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe in me. Yeah, I'm going away, but don't worry about that. I'm sending the Spirit. It's the Spirit that leads you into all truth, John tells us. It's the Spirit that convicts the world around us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. The the Spirit does that. I don't have to go around convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit does that. It's the Spirit that, that leads me. It's the Spirit that illumines me as I read the Scriptures. The Spirit only says what God says. The Spirit only leads me where God would lead me. The Spirit has only says the things of Christ, only highlights Christ. I go to the Word of God, it's all about Christ. The Spirit wants me there. It wants me, it wants me to do what the Father has commanded. So God loves us eternally. He gave us His Spirit to guide us and direct us in every life situation. And we have Him forever. Which begs the question that I'm not going to try to answer tonight. Does that mean we have the Spirit in heaven? He's with us forever. Did you ever think about that? So we... We're loved eternally. We have the Spirit as a guide eternally. What else has He done for us in this special love? Having loved His own who are in the world, He loves us to the What has He done for us? I'll give you a third thing. He has commissioned each one of us. John 13, we hear of the love. John 14, we hear of the Spirit. And then you get to John 15... And we see the commissioning of all of us. John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. You see, love is that expression in which and the ground in which fruit is born. That's what he's saying. Each of us has been given gifts by the Father that we might put into use through love bearing fruit that lasts forever. In fact, the word appointed there in verse 16 carries the idea of investment. That's the idea. Investment. God has invested in you His very self. I chose you and invested in you. And now you have spiritual work that you must do. You must obey what I command you. You must love one another. And when it is done according to my will, it will remain. Your fruit will remain. You see? See how important this is? And of course in John 16, Jesus warns His followers. John 17, He prays, and after that, He dies. Only to be raised from the dead. So this is a very important beginning to this last section. These are very important words for us. These are Jesus' final words. To those who are saved. His final words on earth. Well, there's other things that that we get from God in this love, but, but we'll have to get to them at another time. But the only question left then is this. Why? Why would Christ love me? 
Why would Christ love you? Why would he love us to the uttermost? Obviously, he did not bestow his special love on us because we are lovable. Some of us may be more lovable than others, but that is not why he loved us. We only think some are more lovable than others when we look at it from a human perspective. But from God's perspective, there is nothing that would make us desirable before him. Sin has marred us to the point with which we are unlovable. He is holy. We are unholy. He is just, righteous, good. We are naturally unjust, unrighteous, ungood. He is loving. We are naturally unloving. We are selfish. He is self-giving. And yet, He loves. John says He loves us to the end. In spite of the fact that He knew what was coming. This is what's so shocking. Jesus knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father. He he knew what was coming. Having loved his own who were in the world, he continues to love them to the uttermost. You see, we find it impossible to love. They're impossible to love when we know the consequences of what that love's going to do. We say, if I do that, that will happen to me. Lay it out. Whatever bad it is. If I love that person like that, if I love those people like that, if I love these people like that, this is what's going to happen to me. We, we look and we project the consequences and we say, I'm not going to do that. The cost is way too high. And yet, here we find Jesus Christ saying that even though He knew it was His hour to come, Love this to the end. I couldn't help but be reminded of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though even for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's put that in the terms of John chapter 13. While we were absolutely unlovable, Christ loved us too. That's the point, isn't it? God did not love us because we first loved Him or because anything we could do for Him. God did not need our praise. He was not lacking in glory in some kind of way in which He needed that from us. He did not need spiritual children in order to enhance His life and make His life better because somehow He was lacking. And yet he loves us. So why does Christ love his own to the end? The answer is just very simple. Because he does. Because he does. The reason God loves us is because God loves us. It has nothing to do with us. Beyond that, his love is really unexplainable. Godly love loves. Why do we love our enemies? Certainly we could say because God commanded us and that would be true. But in the confounding eyes of the world around us that watch us love our enemies, all we can say is because we do. 
Because God loves us. Why does God love me? Because he does. I don't deserve it. It's unfathomable that he would, but he does. Godly love loves. Why? Because it can't do anything else. That's why Christ loves us to the uttermost. And that's why Jesus has said to all of us, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. That comes on the heels in verse 36 there. That comes on the heels of what he says in verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. For the sheer fact of bringing glory to God, for the sheer fact of the joy that floods our heart in that it is the reason we would endure whatever we must to love one another. Real peace, real joy, real happiness is found nowhere else. The outworking of eternal peace is love for one another. We talked about peace this morning. Here's the outworking of it. Following the footsteps of Christ and loving one another, no matter what it costs us. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for our time tonight. Just this reminder of the extent to which you would go to love those who are loveless. Those who would not love you in return unless you changed us. We thank you for choosing us before you ever spoke the word of creation. We thank you for loving us in that way from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, choosing us in your Son, sending your Son that we might have life in him, that we might experience and know the love that you have for us through him, opening our eyes to that, causing us by your great power and through the gift of faith to believe upon you that we might have your Spirit in us, that we might walk according to faith and love one another and be an expression of the very love you have for us towards one another, regardless of what that might cost us. Thank you for loving us to the end, forever. That we might rest in that and know that it really doesn't matter what it costs us. Simply to know we are loved by you ought to be enough. And so we thank you for that tonight. We ask you to to impress that upon our hearts and minds in the ways in which we can begin to exercise these things in our own life. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.